0: Well, I'd like to encourage you to turn to chapter 4 of Hebrews. We have a good passage to be working through today. It's Hebrews 4, verses 3 through 11. And let's stand as we acknowledge that this is God's holy and errant, inspired word, worthy for us today to pay close attention to, even as we've heard the warnings in Hebrews. Hebrews 4. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works." And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word and study this morning, I pray that you would help us to hear and may what we hear be united with faith. We've heard and, and seen in past weeks the consequence of those who heard but did not listen, those who did not believe. And so I pray it would be different for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we hear, hear the word rest mentioned several times in this passage along with the term seventh day and Sabbath. And every four or five years, I preach on the topic of the Sabbath, which I enjoy actually because it's so misunderstood. And when people fully understand, I think, why God commands us to keep the Sabbath, it often turns what was once a grudging obligation into a joyful celebration. But first things first, I need to show you some things first. Before we deal with some of the warnings in this passage, I want to build a foundation for a right view of the seventh day. And that term, seventh day, means the same thing as the Lord's Day and the same thing as the Christian Sabbath. A right view of the seventh day begins, ironically, with a right view of the other six days of the week and our work. Now, some of us think that the seventh day or the Lord's Day is an oasis in the middle of a regular week. It's a moment to catch a break before we get back to the daily grind. But probably more of us, if we're honest with ourselves, think of it as sometimes an intrusion into our regular week. After all, we spend most of the week working And when we're not working, we spend a good portion of the rest of the time thinking about work, planning for it, recovering from it, bitter when we work too much, and feeling guilty when we don't work enough. And yet many of us are consumed, even defined, by our work. And that may describe you this afternoon. And how about this? You may find that you've are frequently fantasizing about one day escaping all obligation to work. Does that ring a bell with any of you? That fantasy to be filled with plenty of privilege and money and time and health to enjoy a life free from burdens and doing whatever you want? Well, if that describes you, you're not alone, because I think it describes most people. But perhaps you won't be surprised by me saying that all of those perspectives that I have described in some detail so far are all not biblical. The right perspective, the one that reflects the scriptures, is the perspective that sees work as a gift and blessing from God as an opportunity to worship. And when we went through Ecclesiastes and Proverbs this past year, we learned that work is any effort to produce a state of affairs that is more ordered and better than the way things were before. In Genesis, God is said to have worked six days and then rested. Well, what work did he do there in Genesis 2? He produced a state of affairs, the earth and the heavens, that were more ordered and better than they were before he started creating. And Genesis talks about things that God made as being formless at first and without purpose and then over six days God imparts that purpose he imparts that order to them and so when God commissions Adam and Eve and he says now I want you to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over all that I've done he is telling them to do the same he's saying go out into this world that I have created and I've brought order and purpose and function to and I want you to continue to do that you can't create things out of nothing like I have but you can imitate me by shaping what I have made and what I have given you. And so when we define work in that way, how can we possibly think of work as evil or something from which to escape? One of the key points that I tried to make in that study on Ecclesiastes is that we live our lives constantly in the presence of God and His Spirit indwells us. And therefore, nothing that we do is separated from God. Everything is sacred. And because everything is done in the presence of God for the glory of God and imitates God by bringing order to what he has given us, we saw that in our labor we show our appreciation for what he has made, we obey his commands, we glorify him, we advance his honor and praise among his creatures by having right attitudes about work. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And Ecclesiastes 9 said, to work with all your might. So what if your work became worship? What if the work of your hands, whatever it was, became a sacrament of God's presence that you gave and that you received? What if Jesus himself was your boss? The one who watched over you and, and the one who honored your efforts, and whom you honored by your work. What, what a radical idea it would be that the next time we were tempted to complain about our work, that we praise God for it instead. How about the next time we opened our mouths to gossip about our coworkers or to mock the ones that we work for, that we stopped ourselves? Turned in the other direction and prayed for them instead. Thanks God for them and and looked for the good and the providential in and through them. Well, what I'm saying is before we can keep a Sabbath day properly, we have to cultivate a Sabbath heart and we cultivate a Sabbath heart in the other six days of the week. And that leads me to the first point on your Outlines, if you're using them, about the Sabbath or the seventh day. The Sabbath is not a one-day sacred rest from six days of secular labor. The Sabbath is a one-day sacred rest from your six days of sacred earthly work. And even though that earthly work has a high purpose and God desires that you spend those six days bringing dominion, to his creation, giving him glory, once every seven days he wants you to stop from that labor to do a different kind of work. It's the kind of work described in Isaiah 58 where God says to his people, is not this the fast? And when he's talking about the fast, he's talking about Sabbath rest. Is this not a fast from your work that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? None of those activities sound like just taking a nap or going out on a boat on Sunday. They are activities that bring about a different kind of, of order and dominion to the world, specifically a spiritual order, a spiritual dominion, the advancement of God's grace and salvation. And those are the types of works that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath. And it's so important that we realize that the rest that God offers is not a rest from meaningless work, That we're trying to escape from, like I said, far too many people think of the Sabbath as God saying, rest for a second and gather your breath, get some energy so that you can go out and do some more, right? Get some more done, then come back, go back out, come back. That's not what the Sabbath is. And the sad thing is that when you have that perspective, if you either don't feel, this is the sad irony, if you don't feel that you need to escape your work at rest because you actually enjoy your work, or if you don't feel like you have time to rest, it's easy to say, I don't need the Sabbath this week. And of course, there's not really an option to say that we don't need the Sabbath because God didn't make remembering the Sabbath an option. The fourth commandment is to honor and keep the Sabbath, treating it as holy. And one of the reasons why our passage is filled with warnings and you can see them in verses 2 through 3. What they heard was not mixed with faith, and I swore they would not enter my rest. Or in verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. Or verse 7, do not harden your hearts. Is that resting in God, which is ultimately talking about salvation, is partly symbolized by our resting on the seventh day? And so we need to do what the author says, we need to listen. We need to not harden our hearts, and we need to be obedient. And the moment I mention the fourth commandment, the moment I mention obedience, there will be some that start thinking about how the Ten Commandments are part of the Old Testament law, and the fact that we now live in a period of New Testament grace, and the conclusion is usually that there is no longer a need to observe the Sabbath. And so in that regard, the second point that I want you to hear this afternoon is this, God built... The Sabbath principle into creation and life. Before the fall even took place, God set apart the seventh day. He could have created, right? He could have created and ordered everything in one second, in a millisecond. But he intentionally chose six days of work. Six 24-hour days of work and a day of rest so that we would have that same pattern. And so the Sabbath principle is built into creation and life. And the first mention of the word Sabbath in Scripture, which actually means rest in the Hebrew, is found in Exodus 16.23. And again, that's before the law is given at Sinai. There in 16, God tells the Israelites to gather to prepare manna while they wander in the wilderness. On the sixth day, they are to gather and prepare twice as much as other days because on the seventh day, they are going to rest. And again, that's before the Ten Commandments are given. So by the time we actually come to the commandments in Exodus chapter 20, Israel had for generations been, ever since Adam, observing the Sabbath. And so with that in mind, now we listen to the fourth commandment and we hear this in Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And you'll notice, at least in the Exodus passage, that the wording of the commandment is you shall remember the Sabbath. You can't remember something that is brand new. God is merely enshrining in law what he has already commanded long before that. And he's saying, in effect, let my highest creature, let the one that is in my image stop every seven days and commemorate with me the fact that I am the creator who has done all of this. That I am the fountain of blessing. That even the things that, that he or she produce this says, with their hands are from my providence that I've made the very hands of mine with which they work. Let one day out of seven demonstrate that all land and all animals and all raw materials and all breath and all strength and thought and emotion and everything comes from and is sustained by me. And let my creation share all of this with others. As he does my works on my day, loosing the bonds of wickedness, freeing the oppressed, serving the lowly. And when the fourth commandment is repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses adds some explanation that I think is helpful. It's in Deuteronomy 5.15. He says, And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So after the Exodus, the Sabbath is not only to remind God's people about the need to rest in him, to see him as the source of all life, but now also to symbolize after the Exodus that he is the source of salvation. The Exodus becomes this great picture of redemption. And it's something that his people are going to celebrate week after week after week in anticipation of the even greater salvific work of Christ. One day of rest in every seven days, kept holy to the Lord, reminding them that God is creator and deliverer. So please hear this. Every time that you and I observe the Lord's Day, we acknowledge those truths. When you come here and you assemble with the rest of the body of Christ here in this local uh, manifestation of the church, you are saying, God made me, God sustains me, He redeemed me, He sanctifies me. And it isn't that we don't acknowledge those truths on other days of the week. Many people often say, well, aren't we supposed to worship him every day? Well, yes, we are supposed to worship God every day. As I said, our six days of labor are sacred labor. But the fact that we set aside one day out of seven to excel in our worship, to assemble with the saints, to think greatly upon our great God is something that the rest of this world does not do. And when we do these things, we are even more different. We stand more apart, which is exactly what it means to be sanctified and consecrated and holy. And you may not have thought about this before, but you probably would have expected the command or at least the description of the Sabbath and how to observe it to be found in in the regulations of Leviticus. That's the ceremonial law in particular and some of the civil law. You would have expected there, and there it is some of the description of the Sabbath. But you probably would not have expected that the Sabbath would be found in the moral code. And not only that, but it makes its way all the way to the top ten of the moral code, the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is alongside of worshiping God alone, not murdering, not committing adultery, kind of the the summations of some major areas of moral law, in the midst of that is keep the Sabbath. That's how important it is. In fact, it's so important that breaking the Sabbath carried the death penalty. In Numbers 15.32, we read that while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man Gathering sticks on the Sabbath, and those who found him brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation and put him under guard because it had not been explained. What do we do? Somebody broke the fourth commandment. There seems to have been some grace that had been given by God to those who had violated the original model set by and for Adam. It's very likely that having been in bondage, For 400 years in Egypt that Israel had come to neglect the Sabbath, they had neglected many other things. They were, after all, slaves to Egypt. They had to work every day. But God was long-suffering, and it was still a violation. But earlier they were not put to death, but now we've got the law. So in Numbers 15, Moses is wondering, what do we do? with this man gathering sticks. Now, perhaps Moses wondered if God would still be lenient, despite the fourth commandment, but God wasn't. The rest of the Numbers 15 passage reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Is there a lesson to be learned in that? Maybe this, the last few generations of believers have fallen into bondage under American secular culture, as well as mainstream evangelicalism, which together no longer honor the Sabbath. At least the Sabbath principle. And is there room for grace and patience, long-suffering? Probably initially for believers to be instructed in these principles of God's law and of his word, as we kind of recover and restore back to the church some of the important principles of God's word, especially a respect for the Old Testament, not just as moral lessons and stories, but as something that actually is important still today and relevant. But we've been, we have been instructed in God's word. We have the example of the exodus we have been hearing the warnings in the book of hebrews to think through the examples there and numbers 15 reminds us that god takes seriously the violation of the seventh day now god did not say when you remember to do so i want you to rest on sunday i want you to go to church And then if you remember to think of me during the commercials of the football game or when you pray at the dinner table after you've completed your Christmas shopping and finished building the fence out back, then all is well and good. No, God gave his people a command. And that was to be punished by death, just like the three commandments that preceded. In Hebrews 4, he reminds us over and over again the consequences of disobedience. And so... What what we need to learn from this is that this is serious stuff. We need to be be sober-minded as we read through this. And so my third point is this. Remembering the Sabbath is not optional. Rather, remembering the Sabbath is a reflection of our obedience and our desire to honor God. Now, one of my favorite stories with regard to the Sabbath is during the time of Nehemiah. Like Moses dealing with the Israelites after Egypt, Nehemiah dealt with the Israelites after Babylon. And during the time of the exile, it had become common practice for merchants to come to Jerusalem, set up shop on the Sabbath and sell their goods. And, and Nehemiah wants to recover. He wants to restore what I was talking about a moment ago. He, and so he's contending with some stubborn vendors. <laughs> they keep coming on the Sabbath. And they camp outside the gate, even though he shuts it. But Nehemiah says, keep the gates shut. Because the people are tempted. But wait, they are all came. He says, keep the gates shut. They'll go away. And after a few times, they go away. And it's a good example for us because the church is partially to blame with the situation that we're on right now. We have opened the gates fully on Sundays uh, in America. We once had blue, what were called blue laws that prohibited commerce on Sundays as late as the 1950s, but now they are no more, and I believe the church is partially to blame for that. But by the time of Christ, the Sabbath had become obscured by a multitude of restrictions. Not surprised. Sabbath observance had become formal, more a matter of external regulation than worship, which is just as bad a situation as not observing it at all. And with all the man-made restrictions imposed upon the Sabbath, it was inevitable that Jesus would come into conflict with the leaders of Jerusalem. And on one occasion, he tells the scribes, the Sabbath was made for man, guys. Not man for the Sabbath. And when he tells the, the scribes that, and the Pharisees that, He's explaining, and this is the fourth point, that the Sabbath is to be an instrument that facilitates worship. It's not some kind of monolithic regulation that is like this box that we are constricted by. And Oh, can't believe it's the Sabbath again. That's not what that was at all. The Sabbath was made for man to facilitate worship. So if all you do when you come, for example... Uh, to the Sabbath is looking at as an obligation, you've missed that. If all you do similarly when you come to the Lord's table is say, well, I ate some bread and, and drank some wine or juice today, you're missing the point. Why? Because the bread and the wine point beyond themselves to God's word and promise. Similarly, we can't just say, well, I observed the Lord's day today as the Lord commanded because then we'll miss the point. We need to, we should desire to observe this seventh day because God knows when we do that, when we are driven to contemplate our great creator and our great deliverer and rest from our labors, that we are not only refreshed, but our focus is set right again. The Sabbath is for our good. When we think about Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, not once did he say, you know what, you guys have it wrong. You have it wrong. The Sabbath was meant to be a foreshadowing of the rest of God. Now that I'm here, my disciples don't have to observe the Sabbath. I've come. It's all been consummated and fulfilled in me. No, Jesus says instead the Sabbath was made for man, meaning the Sabbath still exists, but it's being abused. It's become chained by legalism. And it was time to correct people's attitudes. How does Paul approach the seventh day? Well, given that Paul specifically upholds the other commandments, one, it would be odd for him to pick just one commandment out of the ten and say, well, but that one doesn't still apply. It's the nine commandments now for Christians. And then some people point to Colossians 2, 16, which reads, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come but the substances of Christ. What you have to understand in that passage in Colossians 2 is that when he says Sabbaths, plural, and new moons and festivals, he's referring to the, the whole system of high days, high holy days or high Sabbaths that were part of the festal calendar in Israel. They're all outlined in Leviticus, seven feast days. There were high Sabbaths that occurred during three of those festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. There were even Sabbath years. And this festal calendar was meant to foreshadow Christ. And at the feasts, on every new moon, and on seven special Sabbaths during the year, the Israelites performed sacrifices. Well, when Christ came, that sacrificial system was abolished. That is true. They were no longer needed because they were part of the ceremonial system that was nailed to the cross with Christ But the question we have to ask ourselves is why would God abolish the seventh day principle itself which preceded the law? It's not part of either the moral, ceremonial, civil aspects of the law because it was before all of that that preceded the law and the sacrificial system. The seventh day rest was in place in Eden before the fall even. Think about that. Before the fall, God rests from his labor as a model and pattern for his people. Now keep that in mind as we look again at our passage in Hebrews 4. And as I reread the passage this time, every time I read the word rest, I'm going to say the Greek word that is translated rest, katapalo. And see if you note an important distinction. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his Katapaua, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that Katapaua. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my katapawa. Even though the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God, Katapao, on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my Katapao. So far, every time we've heard the word rest, it's been Katapao. But keep listening. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them katapawo, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. Therefore, there remains a sabbatismos for the people of God, for he has entered his katapawo and cease from his works as God did from his. And what you do, especially as you hear the Greek, and you read the Greek, and you hear rest, rest, over and over again, in that one moment in verse 9. Why? In the middle of all of those other times, the sabbatismos is used only once. In fact, it's only used one time in the entire book as Dave pointed out earlier. Even more interesting, the word sabbatismos is a specific word. It only refers to keeping the Sabbath. If all the author wanted to say is that the Christian Sabbath is an eternal rest in God, and that the Christian in the New Testament period is no longer required to set aside one day in seven He could have used kata powwow without any confusion. But if we were reading this in Greek, verse 9 jumps out at us. Here we are reading rest, 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 Sabbath. Why? Because the author is telling us that there remains for the Christian a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath keeping a need still to set aside one day in seven, and then we look at the final verse. Because he Christ, who has entered his rest, has himself ceased from his works, even as God did from his. And what you what you notice is that the the author's argument is that Christ, who is our example, has ceased from his works as God did back in Genesis two. Okay, same Sabbath principle, ceasing from his works. And he is not Joshua. Verse 8 tells us that the read tells the readers that the Israelites were given a rest from war. But that was just the physical war in Canaan. Joshua could not give the people an eternal rest. And so he tells the people, Joshua does, to keep anticipating a future day and a better rest, a rest that is symbolized by keeping the Sabbath, and the author says that that day came in Christ. That Christ rested from his works. But it sounds, like I said, just like that earlier reference to God resting from his works on the seventh day, and that was the original reason for why God set apart a Sabbath day principle in the first place. So what the author here is doing in chapter 4 is he's actually, I think, removing any confusion whatsoever that we are still to keep a seventh day or a Sabbath rest. The Christian today understands even more about why we set aside a seventh day. Not only has God created us, redeemed us, and sanctified, but Christ has recreated us, redeemed us, and sanctified us. And so what Hebrews does for us is remind us of the more profound reasons why God commanded the Israelites to observe the seventh day in the first place. These were purposes that were, went beyond just mere practical reasons, The Sabbath observance in Israel was this symbol, it was this foreshadowing of the type of eternal rest, yes, to be had in Christ, and has been partially realized now, but is yet to come. We are still like those who were in the wilderness. We're still in as pilgrims in this land waiting to enter that future rest. God has rested from his six days of creation Christ has rested from his work of salvation, but we are still working towards that eternal rest. And so there is still, verse 9, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. If the Israelite had cause to set aside one day and still look forward to an eternal rest, how much more do we? They celebrated and remembered, as Deuteronomy said, the redemption from Egypt. But we celebrate and look back at the redemption in Christ. Inevitably, a topic like this usually leads to even more questions, especially when we get to this point. The most popular being, well, okay, what am I not supposed to do? (laughs) What am I not supposed to do on the Lord's Day? If I'm gonna be celebrating, I need to know what I shouldn't be doing. Especially because that numbers passage is kind of scary. Well, our difficulty is that the enemy has done his best to make dishonoring the Lord's Day a temptation for us, hasn't he? He's put the best things, it seems, all of a sudden, on Sundays. He's put the, the best sporting events on Sundays, he puts, you know, Sunday buffets at every corner, Sunday sales. But that's just the tip of the iceberg because if you go beneath the water, you'll find that the rest of the temptation is really our own flesh. We don't like to be still and know God. Engaging in fellowship with other believers makes us tired. We've had busy weeks and we just want to go home. Or we've spent Monday through Friday working to pay the bills, and now we want to use the weekend to work on our personal projects. Or we've so filled our week with activities, work, and busyness, that the only time we have left is Sunday, and that day has become our family's day, not the Lord's day. And so I want to leave you with a challenge. The first answer to the question, what can I not do, is... We must resist those things that distract us from dishonoring the Lord on his day. It is his day, not our day. So are you, a good question for you is, are you evaluating what you do on the seventh day? Are you doing the Lord's works that I described earlier from Isaiah 58? Is your mind focused on taking a a rest from your sacred earthly work and instead excelling in his work i want my children to look forward to sunday i want them to see it as both an opportunity to worship god in the corporate body and to worship god as they develop lasting relationships and friendships with other people i want them to be excited about what they are going to do for the lord on sunday But my second, and I hope better, answer to the question, what can't I do on the Lord's Day, is this. You're asking the wrong question. That kind of question is the one that we ask when we view something as a burden. When we treat man as made for the Sabbath and in bondage to it, we need to know where the restrictions end. Instead, you need to be asking what? What? What can I do? (laughs) What can I do on the Lord's Day? What do I get to do? Right? Isn't that what you parents want your children to start excelling in the better questions? Is not what can't I do, but what do I get to do, mom and dad? Isn't that then signal to us an actual participation by our child in what we are hoping will be beneficial for them? That's what God wants from us. What do I get to do, Lord? How can your day help me better worship you? How can I serve you better? How can I apply myself to, to your works today? How can I acknowledge the grace that you've offered me in your gospel and so I can be strengthened in it even more and I can strengthen others today? Who are you going to bring to me? Or where do I need to go? As long as we keep asking, what, I, what can't I do on the Sabbath? We will remain slaves to the Sabbath. And we'll make it a prison. And that's certainly not what Jesus intended. He intended to use that day for great things. And I want to encourage you, challenge you to trust him in that. The Sabbath was made for you, for your benefit. And I assure you that as you honor God by honoring his day, that he will be glorified and the things that he promises in Isaiah 58 will be true of us as well. Listen to what he says. Your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And when you call, the Lord will answer. And we shall cry, and he will say, here I am. That's what happens on his day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have set for us a pattern and a model that goes back before even the law. A a pattern of resting one day out of seven. We are thankful for the fact that you have not done that just to to set up some regulations and create a system for your creation, but rather, Lord, you've done that for our good. And that when we come to your day with the right heart, when we ask what we can do for your works and for your kingdom, that you go forth before us, you walk as our rear guard and you also go forth as our light and righteousness and healing and all of these things go forth mightily because you are using us and the the Sabbath becomes an instrument of worship. I pray that that would be our attitude and, and that we wouldn't just treat it though as, boy, if we just, we have this instrument available to us if we just pick it up, Lord, you have commanded that we obey. And so while this is for our good, you've also given us this command because it is not to our good when we fail to honor the Sabbath. So I pray that you would help us to have a right understanding of these things and that it would no longer be a grudging obligation for us, but a joy. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Well, we're told by the Lord to remember this Sabbath day, and it's not merely...